This podcast is sponsored by Zondervan Bibles, featuring the new NASB Journal the Word Reference Bible. Let Scripture explain Scripture and reflect on what you learn. Listen for more at the end of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name is Carl Truman, Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College in beautiful Western Pennsylvania. And I'm here with my usual co-host, Todd Pruitt. Let me get it correct. Okay. Covenant PCA, Harrisonburg, mm-hmm. Virginia, in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley. Is that correct? You got it. You got Great. it. I'm, I'm pretty much word perfect on this now after only well, you are. Eight, year, you are. eight years or something yeah, like that. It's only taken that long. Yeah. But we have a special guest today. Uh, my fondest memory of, of, this, uh, of this gentleman is I was sitting in my office at the University of Aberdeen, and I think it was around about the year 1999, 2000, and uh, a young student who was a member of the student group at the church where my wife and I were very much involved in running the student group came into my office uh, and told me that he was planning to stop studying law and go off and study theology. What did I think about that? And I told him, I, th- I think I said, I didn't think there very much of that, that he <laughs> needed to continue doing law, do theology later, because theologians are basically unemployable, and uh, it's good to have a plan B. I, I don't have a plan B. You know, I, if I lose my job, I'm done. <laughs> Thankfully, this young man did take my advice, but has never had to use his plan B. He's now a you know, a respectable gent, uh, a distinguished <laughs> scholar, the founder of, indeed, we might say, a school, the English language school of the study of Herman Barvink. He is, of course, James Eglinton, the Meldrum Senior Lecturer in Reform Theology at New College, Edinburgh, and a member of Cornerstone Free Church of Scotland in Edinburgh, where uh, Neil Macmillan, son of the great Douglas Macmillan, is pastor. And I was not joking when I said that James has been the, the central character, a pivotal character in getting the news about Barvink and stirring up academic scholarly interest about Barvink outside of Dutch language circles. So it's a real pleasure to, to have you on the program, James. It's great to have somebody that was in the student group who hasn't gone on to embarrass me in later life by doing something <laughs> terrible. Great, great to have you on the program. Thanks very much, Carl. It's great to be here. It's great to be here. Carl, I want to I say something. Before we get into to James... You're tell us you're a Scotsman descended from John Knox. Before, before we get into James's book... Uh, uh, Let's talk Cr- about you, Todd. That's what people, that's what people well, no, are No, 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 no. It's important that I identify with James here. Now, James, you and I, both being Scots, we understand the, the oppression and, and the pain caused to us by, by the English. You and I, both being Scots, <laughs> understand the... 
the, the, the great heart-wrenching sadness that comes from having to sometimes be around English people because we're reminded of our history. And I just want you to know that this is a safe place. Carl, being English, cannot hurt you. Uh, he's across the ocean. You can be kind, Carl. Uh, he's he's no longer an oppressor. Uh, he's over here in the United States. We've what, what can I say? All I can say is if you look up obnoxious American on Wikipedia, <laughs> you'll see a picture of Todd Pruitt staring out at you. He's the most American guy I know. Uh, and the other thing is, you know, the English, we protected the Scots from themselves for hundreds of years. A great inconvenience, <laughs> great expense. And this is the gratitude we get. Anyway, James, what we really <laughs> want to talk to you about today are not the old ethnic divisions and tensions of, of North and South Britain, but what I consider to be a, a magnificent biography. I've always said that Andy Hofficker's biography of Charles Hodge was my favorite biography ever written about uh, a reformed theologian. I think I may have to revise that opinion. Maybe your first equal, maybe you even edge, edge Andy out. Baving, a critical biography with a front cover design by another Aberdeen friend slash contact, Oliver Crisp, of course, just been published by Baker Bookhouse. It is an outstanding, an astounding piece of scholarship. Tell us about, I mean, it's clearly a labor of love. You don't write a book like this if you're indifferent to the person you're writing about. Tell us about how you fell in love with Baving's theology, uh, why he's somebody that all Christians should, should know about, even if perhaps some of his writings are a bit beyond some of us in terms of being able to grasp all the nuances of what he's saying. Why is he an important person to have in that pantheon of great theologians of the Christian tradition? Yeah, wow. Thank you so much, Carl. I really appreciate your uh, your encouragement with the book. And it was a labor of love, absolutely. So I discovered Bavink when I was a seminary student at the Free Church College in Edinburgh, um, when I was a student, his works were just coming out in English. Um, so I think the fourth volume of the Dogmatics came out when I was in the middle of my seminary years. And I studied under Donald MacLeod, who um, would encourage us to read Bavinck. And uh, so he was really this new figure on our horizon. I'm reformed in the Scottish tradition, which is so similar to the Dutch tradition, but the Dutch reformed tradition has just some really interesting different emphases. So a doctrine like common grace, which isn't as clearly articulated in, I guess, in the, the Scottish Presbyterian tradition that I'm from, is really well articulated in the Dutch tradition. So that was a kind of hook at the beginning that I thought, wow, this this has a lot of power to explain how to live as a Christian um, in the world itself, and um, a lot of explanatory power for thinking Christianly about lots of things that I hadn't really thought in a deliberately Christian way about before. So then I kind of fell into a PhD on Bavink, um, encouraged by a few people to think about working on him, uh, one of whom was, was you, actually, Carl. I remember writing to you. Um, I do remember for ideas for things to do doctoral research on, and you wrote to me and said, uh, write on Herman Bavink. Um, I think you said he was the last great theologian with truly classical instincts. Um, so there were a few people who said things like that to me providentially and um, ended up doing a PhD on Bavink with David Ferguson at the University of Edinburgh, which I completely loved. I had three really happy, blessed years reading Bavink and trying to get to grips with his thoughts. And then the biography really grew out of that, as I guess, as you say, as a labor of love. Um, it's also a piece of critical scholarship as well. So it's not hagiography. I really wanted to get under the skin of this figure who could write such astounding theology. Uh, what kind of a life um, does that kind of work appear in? What are the factors that produce a historical figure like this? And I didn't think any of the previous biographies that I'd read 
had really done that in the way that I wanted to. So, you know, the, the book is the fruit in some senses of my PhD, although the PhD was on his, his doctrine much more so than his life. Um, but after the PhD, I moved to the Netherlands and I, I worked in Kampen where Bavink was a professor. I was there for three years working at the Theological University, just immersing myself in the language and, and the, the culture that, that Bavink's influence produced and visiting archives and trying to build up my own just collection of resources with his letters and diaries and copies of manuscripts. And so the book uh, developed over a, a number of years after that, but it's been, it's been a long time in the making, I guess, in, in my own mind anyway. James, I, I've, I've been reading through it slowly. And, and as someone who has worked steadily for several years through Mavink's dogmatics, uh, it's, it's been a wonderful kind of companion uh, to that, to see more of the man behind uh, the work. And, and I do appreciate you mentioned um, Bavink's kind of classical impulses. You, you, you find uh, categories of, of classical theism in, in Bavink, which has been encouraging and, and, and helpful to me. But I wonder for the pastors that are out there, help them to understand why they ought to be engaging with with Bavink's dogmatics mm. um, for, the, for the sake of their soul, for the sake of their ministry, for the sake of the people they preach to. How is Bavink continuing to be um, a salutary in, in, in those senses? Yeah, sure. So that's um, a great question. I mean, I think I could probably try and answer this in a way that tags on to the, the last part of Carl's question, which I didn't quite get around to answering, which is why should ordinary Christians care about Bavink today? Mm-hmm as well as pastors. And I think that both groups could really benefit from reading him because um, he was a great theologian with us, as Carl said to me many years ago, with classical instincts. So by that, we mean that he is someone who is really thoughtful and committed in how he engages with scripture. Um, so scripture is the foundation of Christian thinking and dogmatics. Um, Bavink was a really skilled reader of, of Greek and Hebrew. And, uh, you know, the, in the age before we had Bible works and that kind of a software to help us when we get through seminary to interact with the language. Um, but Bavink was really committed to old school exegesis, just with copies of the, the Old Testament and, and the New Testament in the original languages. Even produced a new translation of the Dutch Bible, which was something that I had no idea of before I began working on the biography, but so committed to scripture itself. But also, um, Bavink is such an, an exceptionally well-read guide to the history of how Christian doctrine developed over the, the past two millennia. So when you read his dogmatics, you're really given a treat and being led through the exegesis of biblical texts, and then he'll guide you through just an amazing depth of historical material with telling you, you know, this is how this doctrine was developed in the patristic period, and then in the medieval period, in the Reformation era, and then here's how we get to the challenges that we face in articulating this doctrine today. And, you know, that's what pastors um, need to do as as public theologians, as people who are trying to teach the Christian faith to their congregations. Mm -hmm. They're trying to to do that in um, in their own day and age, and uh, and how you do that is, is a challenge. And um, so, Bavink is a great resource to have um, for thinking. If you're a pastor, for example, about how you communicate the Christian faith in a way that's faithful to Scripture, that's also the historic Christian faith, but also that's attentive to the needs of of your own day as well, and how you hold all of that together. I think a lot of pastors really struggle with wondering how you do that. Um, Bavink himself is a is a really great example of how to do that. 
And in terms of ordinary Christians, because, you know, pastors are the weird ones, <laughs> um, for <laughs> ordinary people, you know, the person in the pew, Bavink is also a really worthwhile resource um, for all those reasons that I just mentioned, but also because he himself was aware that his reform dogmatics, this four volume magnum opus, was what he called the scientific textbook. And it's a resource for people who have a, you know, a degree in theology, who are serious mm -hmm. about theology to have studied it at that level, and also who have the, the time to, to right. use a resource like that. Um, so it's there for pastors when they want to know, you know, I'm preaching on the image of God this Sunday. Well, you know, what do the reformers say about that? What do we have in scripture? What are the, some of the debates that have arisen around that? And then how do I um, explain this and, and proclaim it in my own day? Um, so for pastors, it's a great resource. But for, you know, Bavin was very aware that not everyone has a formal theological training and not everyone has the time that pastors have. So when he finished writing the second edition of his dogmatics, and that's, you know, decades of work, he then set about producing a new version of it, The Wonderful Works of God here, which was aimed by Bavink as a one-volume account of, of the Reformed dogmatics, but for busy young professionals. So it still assumes that you have an education, and that, you know, you're, you're literate and that you like to read books, but um, it's aimed at um, particularly busy young professionals. And then when he finished that, he then started producing a third uh, version of the dogmatics, but in even more condensed form, uh, a guidebook to the instruction in Christian religion and the Christian religion and that's aimed by having um, you know, upper high school students, at, you know, uh, kind of freshman college students, or um, you know, people who who don't have a university level education. Um, so, it, and it's shorter still. So, Bavink himself was really attuned to um, the spiritual needs of ordinary people and their needs for theology, um, and actually tried really hard to make his texts accessible across a range of levels in a way that's maybe been forgotten a bit um, in the the century since then, at least in the English speaking world. But we do have more access to these resources now, uh, so he, he really does care um, about ordinary people, about um, how you live Christianly in the world in which you live, um, and not just for you know for ordained ministers or for theology students, but for everyone. Yeah, and and one of the things I love about the single volume, the wonderful works of God, is that there is there is a, a devotional warmth to it, which is encouraging. And there and I have there there are some members of my church that are working through that book right now and finding it uh, very um, encouraging. Uh, before I flip back to Carl, I did want to ask you about this. Um, Bob Inc., like all of us, was a man of his times, and he was living at a time of of. Of, of great advancements, the dawning of modernity, perhaps, and scientific discovery and the implications of Darwinism, et cetera, et cetera. How did he navigate some of these challenges from modernity, some of these discoveries scientifically? Um, how did he navigate that in terms of himself being a, you know, to, to use our own language, a conservative, orthodox, Calvinist, reformed theologian? I wonder if I could piggyback off that, Todd. I, yeah. I was thinking as we were talking, um, G.C. Burkauer in his Half Century of Theology. I don't think Burkauer ever studied under Bavink. I think he studied under Hep. So he was like a sort of grandson of Bavink on that front. But he made a, it makes an interesting comment about Bavink. Uh, he refers to Bavink as, as holding to orthodoxy, but being very angry with anyone who met who didn't realize how difficult that was. <laughs> and I found that quite helpful. When I was first started teaching, I was teaching at a you know, university like James was, where I'm surrounded by colleagues who don't hold the beliefs that I hold. I, I found that very helpful. But of course, it does parlay into this sort of question that Todd's asking that, that I would sort of put in this way. There is this tradition of 
seeing Baving as a man divided against himself. I remember my Dutch friend, Willem van Asselt, saying, oh, Baving sort of towards the end of his life, he sort of abandoned dogmatics and he veered off towards psychology. And, you know, he is a man of the modern era. So, you know, it's, it's sort of building off Todd's question there. How do you put all this together, James? Again, great questions. So for Bavink, from pretty early on in his um, theological formation and his um, emergence as a you know, mature thinker, even in young life, um, he was very drawn to the idea that it, that it should be possible to have a holistic view of life, of knowledge, of of the world, because it is uh, it's God's world, and because all truth is God's truth. So um, I think Bavin grew up in a kind of context where uh, mod- modernity was all about um, fragmentation, all about life becoming very splintered and people not really being sure of what they have to do with each other, uh, also in terms of knowledge as well. And um, so in Bavin's young life, there's this figure who appears, uh, Abraham Kuyper, who is this uh, kind of firebrand in the Dutch Reformed Church, uh, leading a renaissance of Calvinism, but with a, with a modern flavour. And I think well, one of the things that caught um, Baving's imagination about the young Kuiper, this you know dramatic, exciting new figure, and on, on his horizon was um, Kuiper's claim that Calvinism, as the the, the, the best um, articulation of Christianity, is the key to a unified life and worldview, and that the Christians can have a lot of confidence that that, that you can be a, in Baving's language a child of God in all things, in how you think about science and how you think about art and society and the church, um, how you think about history and your your point within it. So there's that quest for a life that holds all of these things together. That is the impulse, I think, at the core of Baving's life, and I've tried to trace that out in the biography. And um, the more you do that, the more you follow his life like that, the more he appears as kind of a Renaissance man. It's not at all the case that you know Baving invests lots of decades in dogmatics and then gives up on it, and then he goes into psychology. In fact, when he's writing his Reformed dogmatics, um, around the time that he's releasing Volume Two, he also releases quite a long book on psychology uh, from a Christian perspective. Um, he's he's active in so many different fields throughout his life. He's a journalist at the same time as he's writing the dogmatics. He becomes a national newspaper editor for a while. Um, so he's interested in psychology and poetry. He's interested in uh, just all these different spheres of life at the same time, which I think is part of what makes him such a compelling and intriguing figure. It's not that you have segment after segment where he moves mm. from one you know, fad or one fancy to the next, but actually he's always trying to hold all of these things together. So I think you have to look at that in the first place with understanding why he tries to engage with what's the latest in evolutionary biology and what's the latest in, in social and political theory, what's the latest in economics. So he's following all of these things at the same time, but from what he perceived to be a very secure foundation in this idea that you can live quorum deo. But it's a really hard thing, as you say, especially I think Bavin was aware that in the modern age, we feel very distanced from God experientially. And um, that you know, makes it a kind of a difficult thing, I guess, to try and live uh, before the face of God consciously in each area of life. He faced lots of challenges, lots of rejection from uh, skeptics and from unbelieving uh, scholars in these different fields that he tried to engage with Christianly. He faced accusations of pseudoscience from from one particular mm. um, professor in his own day who wasn't at all sympathetic to Bavink trying to think Christianly as a scholar about lots of different fields. But this, this is his life project. Um, how do you do all of these things together and how do you hold them all together in one person as well and in his own life, 
which is a huge challenge. It's a, it's a biographer's dream, though, because as you're telling this story, it's just so colourful. You know, wherever you look, he's really at the forefront of engagements with intellectuals and with cultural figures. So, yeah, it was, it was really fun to try and trace all of this out when researching his life and writing it up. This is a big question, perhaps, and, and it's part of what you really try to, to address here, and it goes back in part to Carl's question earlier. But to those who would say, you know, kind of have this, uh, and you even mentioned this Jekyll Hyde perspective on uh, Bavink, that he was really divided between his orthodoxy and trying to navigate the issues being raised um, in his day. You take a different tack than that. You ch- you push back against that kind of bifurcation of his personality being two different men. Um, how do you answer those who, who say, gosh, you know, th- th- this was a, a divided character here? How do you answer that? Yeah, so that's the way that people read Bavink for quite a few decades in the 20th century, where people would talk about an almost a Jekyll and Hyde combination, where modernity and orthodoxy are um, like oil and water. And that Bavink came from a, from a church tradition where lots of people are engaging with the same questions, all about how you engage with the modern worlds um, in which you find yourself. Um, what I try and set out in the biography is that, so in the history of the Netherlands, it became a liberal democracy in 1848. So that's uh, six years before Bavink was born. And until then, it was an authoritarian monarchy. Um, and you know, it's it's not late modern culture at all. It's not a, like a kind of pluralistic culture where you're free to believe whatever you want. If you came from Bavink's denomination, uh, from his church tradition, and you were a pastor, let's say, state-led persecution would be a normal part of your life experience. You know, you go to church on Sunday not knowing if the police will come and beat you up as pastor mm. and arrest you and fine you or imprison you. So prison sentences for pastors in his church were the normal story. Mm. Um, and then, so, you know, it's, it's a really different kind of phase of, uh, you know, of Dutch history um, that we're talking about just before Bavink is born. And then all of a sudden, overnight, it becomes a liberal democracy. All, all overnight, you have freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, all these different things. And so that creates a completely new kind of society to live in. It's a, it's a big experiment in culture and uh, telling people who previously um, you know, didn't share equal freedoms to worship as they, their consciences saw fit, for example. All of a sudden, nobody's persecuted anymore. Um, yeah. If you want to, you can send your children to university now, even though you're from this particular church. So you have this entire denomination who are trying to navigate these questions. So Herman Bavink is, in, is not unique in that regard. He, he is unique in that he's, he's the kind of tip of the spear of this denomination that's being thrust into the middle of modern culture, working out how, you know, how deeply can we enter into this? And you know, how do you go about you know, just finding your feet in this new terrain, um, in this brand new kind of society that is just an about turn from how things were before for you know, Bavink's parents, for example. So the questions about being orthodox in the modern world are really common ones, actually, in his context. And Bavink is, is pretty amazing in, in how much he articulates um, how to do this, and also in his own life and his example of becoming a politician, being a journalist, being a scholar, um, and all of those things. But they're not unique to Bavink. Um, it's a weird kind of perspective to look back on and say that, um, that the rest of the, the orthodox Calvinists were fleeing from modernity, and Bavink is this you know force of nature who runs into it. That's just it's not at all true. And for Bavink himself, um, it's a difficult thing to be an orthodox Christian in broader modern society, and you see that through his through his journals and through his letters and his concerns about you know am I following Christ well in this context? 
all the other students around me are, are getting drunk, um, swearing like sailors and all that kind of stuff as, as, as you find in his diaries about them. What should my friendships with them look like? Um, you know, you go and hear a lecture by some professor who, who denounces the Christian faith and you're this conservative Christian student in the lecture. Um, what do you do there? Um, so these questions are all, they're significant for him. He didn't have an easy time of it, but um, they were, you know, just questions that lots of people had. And he had a really remarkable life in following this through over decades and working out how to follow Christ throughout the whole course of his life. Which would have a lot to say uh, for yeah. Christians today in our particular Absolutely. era. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's good. I teach a course at Grove every few years. I call it the Shadows of the Antichrist, which is theism and atheism in the 19th century. And we look at uh, Nietzsche, Marx, Kierkegaard, Cardinal Newman, and I struggle to find the, an Orthodox Protestant uh, that's wrestling with the questions of modernity in a deep way. And, and I actually settled out eventually on Philosophy of Revelation by Herman Barbie which I may switch that to the Christian worldview book that you've since translated, James. But it is say, you know, Barbink, he may not be the only one wrestling with these issues, but I think he's probably the most accessible to an English language uh, audience. The Scottish divines, you know, the clever Scottish Presbyterians are going off with ritual and liberalism. The Princeton guys are sort of caught in this kind of in not a very nuanced philosophical framework, I think. With Barbink, you get something different. So that was all I wanted to say, Todd. You may wrap up now. <laughs> I'd also say that James is starting to look remarkably like Barbink. And I advised him earlier this week, do not write a biography of Kuiper because you do not want to end up looking like Kuiper. <laughs> <laughs> well, before I wrap up, James, um, the little volume um, from Barbink on Christian worldview, um, I, I wonder if you would explain briefly to our audience why they ought to read that. Because mm. sure. it's, it's really wonderful, and, and I'd love for them to hear from you why it would be a great idea for them to read that. Sure. It's a great book. It's a short book that really packs a punch. Um, it's not Bavink's easiest text to read, um, mm. but it is Bavink's attempt to explain in three short chapters why the modern attempt to live the good life in the world uh, doesn't really work. Um, unless it's done through the, the lens of the Christian faith. So questions about what, why do I exist? What do I exist for? Um, and uh, those kinds of questions, which are really huge existential ones, are questions that Baving thinks you, you need Christianity to explain in a way that will give you a, a satisfied uh, heart and mind. Um, so it, it's, it, it's a text that you should read slowly and thoughtfully. Um, it's not Christian worldview in the terms of, you know, points one, two, three, you know, simple, uh, like a how-to guide to make sure that you've kind of Christianized each part of, you know, which newspaper you buy, which shoes right. you wear. It's really a kind of theological, almost philosophical attempt to engage with the, the profound uh, questions that, that are really existential ones about mm -hmm. the, your life and why you exist, what you yeah. exist for and how you yeah work out answers to those questions. So it's a great book. It's not an easy book, but it's so rewarding to read. I agree. And I would hope that uh, some curious uh, laypersons out there would pick up that, that slim volume by Bavink and work through it, work through it slowly if you need to, um, but you can do it. And I, and I think you'll find a lot of treasure there. Well, our, our guest has been uh, James uh, Eglinton, the author of this wonderful biography on Herman Bavink, uh, Bavink, a critical biography. Now, if you like to read biography of any sort, 
I would encourage you to pick up this volume, not least of all, because it's just a really well-written biography and you'll enjoy it from that standpoint, but also just the interesting life of this particular character. Remember, this is a theologian living at a time of great social change. And for that reason alone, it's worth a Christian picking up and, and journeying through. But, but again, if you like biography, you're going to like this wonderful book. And James, we thank you for uh, the years it took you, no doubt, to research this and to write it. It's, it's a wonderful gift to the literary corpus of, of our time and, and a wonderful book to sprawl out before on, a, on an evening with a cup of coffee and enjoy. It's, it's terrific. And we're so glad you took time to be with us today. So thanks so much for joining us, James. Thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. I also want to commend the book because it has pictures. Um, I believe every biography ought to have pictures because I like to look at the people uh, that the author is is. You believe every book should have pictures because then there are less long words to read. (laughs) I am telling you, this book is a proper biography, not least of all, because it has a section in the middle with pictures like every biography ought to have. So we're glad um, for that as well and thankful for Baker Bookhouse for producing such a, uh, a terrifically constructed volume in that sense. Now, if you would like to win a copy of uh, James's book, then you can go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, and enter to win a copy. Again, thanks to the fine folks at Baker for making it available for us to do that. And while you're there, consider making a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals so that they can continue to produce this sort of content. We're so glad that you joined us today. We're so thankful for our guest, James Eglinton, and his work. And uh, we look forward to being with you next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. I tell Carl all the time I'm, I'm of Scottish descent and, you know, fake, people like Carl, fake Scott warning, fake people, Scott people, warning. people like Carl just don't understand what, what Scots like us, James, have, have been through and uh, what we've suffered at the hands of the English. <laughs> oh, dear. There's nothing like a fake Scott to make me really racist. <laughs> I'm Welsh and Scottish. So. Wow. The Scottish side descended from William Wallace and Robert the Bruce. And- oh, he claims John. He claims John Knox. <laughs> it is true. I'm telling you, I've 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 seen the published documentation. Yeah, it's John Knox, J O N Knox. The NASB Journal the Word Reference Bible allows you to record your thoughts next to treasured verses as you cross-reference other scriptures. This single-column red-letter Bible features extra-wide margins, giving you plenty of space to reflect on God's Word and enhance your study. 
Recognized as the gold standard among word-for-word translations, the beloved New American Standard Bible 1995 edition is now easier to read with Zondervan's exclusive comfort print typeface. Excellent to give as a gift or for personal use. This Bible with your personal writings inside can also become a cherished heirloom to pass on to future generations. Available in black hardcover or brown leather soft, this beautiful Bible lays flat in your hand or on a tabletop. Let Scripture explain Scripture and reflect on what you learn. The NASB Journal the Word Reference Bible from Zondervan. See it now at zondervan.com slash Bibles. 